0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to take another step towards explaining America with Henry Grabar, a Slate staff writer and author of a new book, Paved Paradise How Parking Explains the World. Henry Grabar, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I started my morning, I confess, with a reminder on my phone telling me to move my car because of street cleaning. So parking has already shaped my day. But I want to ask you about the aha movement behind this book. When did you get come up with the idea that parking shapes not just America, but the world?
1: Well, as I noted in the TV clip in this introduction, I am a journalist who writes about city issues. So I wrote about housing, I wrote about the environment, I wrote about infrastructure, architecture, and parking would come up again and again. But perhaps the most, um, the incident that made the biggest impression on me was when I went to Houston, Texas, and I was reporting on the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. And I found people who said that their houses had begun to flood where they had never flooded before. As a result, they thought, of upstream development of parking lots. And indeed, when you look at a city like Houston, which has seen the pace of development that it has over the last two, three, four decades, you begin to realize that not only is parking an important part of the transportation system, of course, but it is literally shaping the environment. And we're actually living now in some places in man made floodplains composed of asphalt and concrete uh, that make up parking lots.
0: And so we get to this point where you say there's more space for parking than for housing in this country. How do we get to that? And how does America's car obsession fit in with that?
1: Well, it wasn't always that way, of course. In the 1940s and 50s, America had dense, bustling downtowns and cities, much like you would see in uh, parts of Europe or Latin America or East Asia today. but at the time, parking was a real pain in the neck and city planners decided they were going to do something about it. And what they did was they required a certain number of parking spaces accompany every single land use, whether it was an apartment building or a pool hall or a swimming pool or a factory. They all had to have a certain number of parking spaces. And over time, that led to such an abundance of parking that, as you say, we now have more square footage for parking than for housing. and by some estimates, we may have as many as six spaces uh, for every car, but certainly at least three. And of course, some of those cars are in motion, which means that the parking supply in the country is never more than 30 percent full.
0: So, so Henry, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about this dream, the other nostalgia around America's Main Street, right? Can we have could we rebuild a Main Street with these kinds of policies and regulations you're talking about now?
1: No, we couldn't. And that's the tragic irony of these policies, because they were actually put in place in many cases at the behest of Main Street merchants and business interests who said the parking shortage is killing our business. And uh, and sure enough, they created a lot of parking. But what they also did was they hollowed out a lot of the places that people had wanted to drive to in the first place. And I'll give you a very concrete example of how this works. Let's say you want to build a typical main street lot in an American city, which looks like, um, let's say you want to put in a restaurant with two floors of office above. Well, in most cities, like let's take Florida, for example, in Pensacola, in West Palm Beach, in most cities in Florida, you need uh, 10 parking spaces for every thousand square feet of restaurant. Now, a parking space takes up, let's say, 250 to 300 square feet. So 10 parking spaces is almost 3,000 square feet of parking for every 1,000 square feet of restaurant. So you can see that your lot that you were hoping to turn into a restaurant (laughs) is now three quarters parking. And that's to say nothing of the parking that might be required for the offices that were built above the restaurant. So uh, all in all, you begin to see that that kind of Main Street style development with buildings that are adjacent to one another that fill up their whole lots becomes completely impossible when you require this amount of parking.
0: I am beginning to feel very proud that the car I moved this morning was a Mini and not something bigger. <laughs> but of course, I'm still allotted the same amount of parking space if I'm in a lot as opposed to street parking. But But Henry, you write that you're not anti-car, that this is all about parking. What's the distinction there? Why do you say you're not anti-car?
1: Well, I when I started working on this book, I read a lot of books about American car culture, suburbanization, and all this stuff. And if you read these books, and this is going back really to the 1950s with, you know, uh, I'm thinking the kind of strain of thought that's epitomized by the song Little Boxes, um, which is to say decrying people who lived in the suburbs as basically being um conformists and, and and that sort of thing uh, that really seems pretty out of date to me today uh the suburbs are extremely diverse uh, many of them are um full of well not only large populations of immigrants but there's a lot of poverty i mean the whole built environment in america has become very very complex in a way that defies those easy 1950s stereotypes about who lives in the city who lives in the suburbs Um, So that's part of it. I didn't want to write a book that was anti-suburb, decrying people who drove a lot as um, being uh, somehow uh, unethical. Um, I think the larger point though, is that uh, many of us don't have a choice whether we want to drive or not. And so I feel like we can have an honest reckoning with the externalities of the car, uh, air pollution, um, traffic crashes, the destruction of the urban environment and all these things without holding people accountable um, for participating in a system uh, in which they don't really have a lot of choice. I mean, in America, if you want to live in a city, you're often paying a huge real estate premium just to live in a place where you're able to walk. And so many people, in fact, do out for the suburbs. And I think there's been this long debate uh, about the extent to which suburbanization is a result of American uh, Americans' preference or simply a result of the systems of law and subsidy that we've constructed. Um, and I tend to think that it's pretty hard to discern any true preference for the suburbs when we have so many federal policies um, that make suburban living uh, much more uh, affordable uh, than urban living. And one of those, of course, is the requirement that there be parking with every site. I mean, we have bundled into every single real estate project, the assumption that everyone will drive a car. And if you don't drive a car and you live in one of these buildings in say, uh, Dallas, Texas, um, you wind up paying a good share of your rent or the purchase price of your home just to pay for that mandatory garage that was built as a result of the city law, whether you want it or not. And I don't think that that's fair.
0: So how did this, this theme that you have surfaced in this book stay under the radar so long? You write that architects, urban planners, journalists even haven't really thought about parking as a theme, Um, why not? Why have we ignored it?
1: Well, parking was in fact a great subject of interest in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, right? So there is this buried wealth of knowledge about parking and its contribution to traffic, its relationship with architecture, all this stuff. We once knew about this, but I think what happened was that in the second half of the 20th century, We were so successful in America in creating enough space for everyone to have free, convenient and available parking at every single destination that that school of thought in terms of thinking about how to provide more parking just ceased to be that relevant. And in fact, it took some time for a new group of reformers to come along, uh, led by the UCLA planning professor Donald Shoup, and say, you know what, the actual problem here now is that we have too much parking and that certainly much. has been the focus of the research <laughs> of
0: the last but but you know having had my morning the morning i've experienced and i think other dc residents would say the same thing you're suggesting we have too much and yet so much of us spend our time circling the block my idea of whether it's too much or too, too little depends on as i said whether i'm circling that block or whether i'm looking at a sea of other people's cars taking up a huge landscape do we really have too much parking
1: On a national level, we do, we do. We really do have too much. I mean, there's, you could argue about what the ideal amount of parking should be, but I think we can acknowledge that if parking is uh, never more on a national level than one third full, then it means we have quite a bit of ample real estate that could be put to better uses. Um, with respect to your block in D.C., I don't dispute your testimony <laughs> that it is in fact difficult to find parking there. Of course, we are all familiar with this experience, myself included, of circling the block and, and being able to find a space. I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one is of course, that you live in one of the uh, singularly dense urban environments in America, in Washington, D.C., which is very much not typical of the American urban environment. Um, but the other thing, of course, is that parking is free. And street parking is free. And uh, one of the things that happens when something is free is that it gets used in a way that's very inefficient. And that's something we see with parking all the time, is that the lack of a uh, the lack of any price put on parking means that people will leave their cars there for days, weeks, or months at a time and uh, and clog up what might otherwise be, Um, vibrant uh, streetscapes where people are pulling in, pulling out, doing their business uh, with vehicles that are just stuck there basically performing with the street performing long-term car storage.
0: So let's get to this very provocative idea that you raised right at the beginning of the book about the impact on housing. And I think recent estimates from Freddie Mac say we're short something like 4 million, 3.8 million housing units at the moment. Why does parking play into that number?
1: Well, There are two reasons. The first one is that parking costs a lot of money to build. So when we go back to my Main Street example earlier, you might say, well, you can still build that Main Street building, just put the parking lot underground. Okay, Uh, underground parking in most cities costs upwards of $60,000 a space. Uh, And sometimes it can cost six Mm -hmm. figures. So if you're trying to build Uh, a row of, for example, Brooklyn brownstones or DC row houses or Boston triple deckers or Chicago three flats, any of these housing typologies that made up the American vernacular up until the middle of the 20th century, it is simply unsustainable from a financial perspective to put that parking along with those uh, housing units uh, underground or something like that. Um, Now, of course, you could include the housing uh, with the building, but then again, the other thing is that parking takes up a lot of space. So at 250, 300 square feet for every parking space, for every space you include, you you are literally taking real estate away uh, from what might otherwise be much more lucrative use of land, which is housing. And so this acts as a constraint on many developers working in these markets. Right? They have to make a choice between whether they're going to devote square footage to housing or to parking. And in fact, mostly they don't get to make a choice because this is required by law that this parking be included. And the result of that really is that we've seen an extinction level event for these kinds of infill uh, apartment buildings, so-called missing middle housing that once made up the backbone of America's housing infrastructure.
0: So in the book, you talk about Seattle uh, when you're talking about the relationship between housing and parking. Tell us what happened there.
1: Seattle is an interesting example of what we've seen in the last 10 years, which is that many large American cities, and small ones too, college towns and so forth, have begun to revisit the wisdom of these 1950s parking laws. And they've decided, what if we just let builders decide how much parking they wanna build? What if we let builders survey the market, get a good sense of who their tenants or buyers are gonna be, and decide how much parking they wanna build instead of holding them accountable to these spreadsheets that tell them, you know, two spaces per apartment, 1.5 spaces per bedroom, et cetera. What happened in Seattle was they enacted such a reform about a decade ago. And for all the housing that got built under this reform, many builders still built parking, which is no surprise. This is America, after all. Many home buyers, apartment renters, et cetera, will want a parking space. But what's interesting is that almost all the buildings that got built under this reform built less parking than would have been required under the law up to that point. And the amount of parking that they didn't build, the amount of would be wasted parking that they decided they didn't need, was worth half a billion dollars. So the cost of housing in Seattle effectively went down half a billion dollars in terms of the cost to construct all these units and that's a massive number and that's just over 10 years in a single city.
0: Huh. So just to step back and just quickly, how did these parking minimums get enacted in the first place? What was the, the driving force behind them?
1: Well, back in the 1950s, again, you got these bustling American cities where nobody has any place to park and I think they faced a crossroads, right? They had two options. One of them was that the public sector could take charge of providing all this parking, building the lots and garages municipally owned that would create enough room to try to recreate the suburban parking experience downtown. That was really the goal because they were were afraid of what shoppers, uh, office tenants, residents had come to find was uh, expected in the suburbs, free parking right in front of the store you were going. So cities did try and do that they did build big underground garages lots and so and so on but they also realized that if it's just the city's job to provide all this parking then we're going to be taking a whole lot of land off the tax rolls and we're also going to be spending a lot of public money to provide a lot of parking for which very few people want to pay enough money to recoup the costs of construction so it's sort of a money losing enterprise um, building these garages. And so they came up with this workaround and they said, you know what, we can make the private sector handle the parking problem by requiring every new or renovated building to include this certain number of parking spaces. And at the time, I don't think they could have imagined how successful these requirements would have been. But of course, after 70 years of urban development, a time in which this country's population has doubled, um, they have worked their way into every little bit of architecture. I mean, you look at a building post 1950 and you are looking at the architecture of parking requirements, whether it's a skyscraper or a hotel or, a, a, you know, or a single family home, of course.
0: Henry, you mentioned um, flooding earlier on, and I lived in the Netherlands some years ago, and parking underground parking garages were actually used to store water during flood events. So they, they, they became a facility to store water. But here they can be something of a liability. Um, as you said, what is the impact of parking more generally on climate change and on cities ability to respond to the effects of climate change?
1: Well, I think parking has a negative impact uh, in terms of our contribution to climate change in a few ways. Um, the first and most obvious one is that parking is a massive subsidy for driving. The more parking you provide, the more people will drive, and driving transportation is America's largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. So, parking is part and parcel of the policies, the the, the suite of policy choices that we've made that make driving absolutely essential in this country. And that is, of course, a major contributor to climate change. In terms of our ability to adapt, parking is also um, stopping us from doing some of the things we need to do. Uh, You mentioned garages holding water. The reason garages are good at holding water is not just because they're underground, but also because um, they're uh, impervious, right? I mean, they just, they fill up and they contain water rather than uh, leaking it back into the ground. And that that actually in most places is a problem, either because you end up with a situation like what they have in Houston or Chicago, where you have these uh, pretty densely built, highly paved neighborhoods where people's basement floods every time it rains because there's so much impervious surface that the water doesn't go into the ground. And, but the other reason is that in dry parts of the country, like Los Angeles, every time it does rain, that water doesn't get into the ground and penetrate into aquifers where it could replenish the drinking water supply. So that's that's a major problem as well. Um, and then finally, of course, all this asphalt is an enormous contributor to the urban heat island effect. So in terms of weathering the effects of climate change, whether it's rain or heat, um, we have built ourselves into an environment uh, that is not doing us any favors.
0: Let's get to an audience questions. People have been writing in, and I want to ask you one. This one comes from Evelyn Cantor. And Evelyn asks, she's from New York, and she asks, um, how do we balance or control the growing need for EV charging in public parking spaces? Interesting
1: question. It's It's a huge issue. I'm very concerned about our ability to adapt cities where people park on the street To meet the needs of ev drivers surveys show that people will not buy electric vehicles unless they are comfortable with the idea that they're going to have a place to charge them every night and obviously in cities like not just new york but chicago philadelphia los angeles um any city where people park on the street in large numbers they're going to have a lot of trouble uh charging those cars now, some cities have taken it upon themselves to begin to provide an infrastructure of public charging. But the problem with this is that it's extremely expensive. I mean, uh, even a middle-sized city like San Francisco has something like 500,000 on-street parking spots. And at the current rate, uh, electrifying a single parking spot and putting a charger in there at the curbside can cost 30, 40, 50 thousand dollars. So you do the math, it's not really going to work to electrify all those parking spots along the curb. On the other hand, it shouldn't really be necessary to provide a parking spot charger for every single car. What we should be able to do in a perfect world is share those chargers. But of course, if the future of our climate and our planet depends on people uh, sharing parking spaces in a civil and well-behaved manner, then we might have a problem on our hands.
0: So I want to jump to another entirely different kind of charging, and that's tickets, Um, parking tickets. You have some astounding numbers in the book about how much a city like New York generates from parking, sort of revenue-driven policing in a sense. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Right. So New York, in a typical year, makes twice as much money from parking tickets and violations as they do Mm -hmm. from parking meter fees and garage taxes put together. So really, the entire parking policy of major cities, and New York is not alone in this, is geared towards fining people for illegal parking. Now, uh, this is bad, and not just because I don't like getting parking tickets, but it's also a bad way to think about a public system. Ideally, you want the meters to be uh, sufficiently priced uh, at a high high enough level that you clear out s- spots on every block so that everyone who shows up has a place to park. Economists would call this a market clearing price. So if you set the meter price high enough, you make a situation where on every block there's always a space for somebody to pull in and park. And in fact, cities like San Francisco that have done this have found that their enforcement revenue goes down because people find there's always some place they can legally park. But of course, many cities see this parking violation revenue As a thing that they sort of enjoy, even if it has a tremendous cost, both for their citizens and for uh, city streets and, and for traffic. I mean, a good example of this is delivery trucks in a major city like Philadelphia or D.C. or New York, a major delivery truck like a UPS truck can rack up tens of thousands of dollars a year in parking violations. Now this has a huge cost for traffic in particular because that double parking uh, is a massive contributor to traffic congestion. But from a city's perspective, um, they probably see that as a a source of revenue. And it's one of the reasons that I think you don't see as many cities creating uh, special loading zones for trucks to pull over and make those deliveries without blocking traffic. (laughs)
0: Um, Everybody loves a story of a good scam unless they're the victim of it. But you also have these extraordinary stories about the uh, illegal revenue generated around parking. Describe that to us. Why is parking such a great source of uh, money laundering and other forms of illegal revenue?
1: Well, the best way I found this explained to me was by a, a former garage owner who was saying that when you run a garage, you are renting space by time. And so there is very little besides your own ledger books to uh, attest to how many people came in, when they came in, and how long they were there before they left. Now, people who work in garages have been wise to this state of affairs for many years, uh, in the 70s and 80s, especially when the garage industry was a cash business. Um, this meant that uh, garages were very susceptible to two types of misbehavior. The first of them was money laundering, because um, if you made your profits at some other way, you could simply uh, overcount and pretend that you had had a, had a lot of cars parked in your garage and then ascribe uh, that illegally made money um, as garage profits and, and voila, uh, your your money was clean. But the other way you could do it, of course, was simply by stealing money and not reporting it to the IRS. And, and this was probably more common and even easier to do uh, because you can, of course, just simply take your garage and at the end of the day say, I'm sorry, nobody parked here today. And uh, stuff all the dollar bills into your jacket and go home. And very many people did that. And you have to remember that not just the owners of the garages, but the people working there as well, um, were sometimes being paid minimum wage or less jobs, uh, working for tips, and at the same time, um, stuffing tens of thousands of dollars in cash into a box every night. So obviously, there was uh, quite a bit of temptation there.
0: Henry, we're all about explaining America, but are there cities around the world that are doing this right, that are balancing housing, cars, parking, and creating a vibrant uh, and livable situation for people?
1: Well, one example that everyone likes to talk about in the parking world is Japan, because in Japan, you are required to show that you have a place to park your car before you can buy the car. There is none of this American business of, I'm gonna buy the car and I'll figure out the parking later, And fight with my neighbors with a baseball bat and a lawn chair to reserve my own stretch of the curb no in japan you must have a space uh, to park the car before you can buy one um in western europe they have begun to reconsider the prominence of street parking in the urban landscape i mean you look at cities like uh paris or amsterdam they're now uh they've now made an explicit civic goal to get rid of parking spaces which would have been unthinkable uh Half a century ago, but that is now urban policy, and it's because they've internalized this total reversal in the way we think about parking. In the 50s and 60s, the thinking was the more parking you provide, the less traffic you'll have because drivers will come in and they'll easily find a place to park. And the new consensus is that, in fact, it's the opposite. The more parking you have, the more, par- the more traffic you'll have because you'll draw in more and more drivers and people will continue to drive and they'll clog up the streets. And in fact, what places like Paris and Amsterdam are doing is they're betting on this and they're saying, we're going to bet that by taking parking away, our traffic will get better and not worse. And so far, it's working.
0: Another international question. London, of course, has had congestion pricing. Some other cities have too. I think it's something New York is looking at. Is that an answer or not?
1: I think congestion pricing can be a very um, effective technique to clear up downtown streets and make way for the vehicles that need the most. Um, One of the more more positive results you see with congestion pricing is that um, emergency vehicles, of course, have their response times drop significantly uh, when there were fewer people driving downtown. And in fact, many people who work with their cars um, who are often framed as being victims of this type of policy. And you see that rhetoric in New York, which is discussing this policy. People said, well, um, what about people who work with their cars? How will they manage? Uh, but in fact, they often benefit from these systems because suddenly the streets are clear of all those discretionary car trips, and they have the ability to make their deliveries without worrying about getting stuck in traffic.
0: So I think we're pretty much getting to the last question, Henry, but I want to ask you what the smartest reforms you're seeing in America are. Where are they? Is there a city that's really making a dent in this problem?
1: Well, the most basic one certainly is simply to stop requiring builders um, to build as much parking as, as they've been required to build for the last 50 years. One example of a place that's doing that is Buffalo, New York. And what they've begun to see in the six years since they implemented that reform is lots of new housing and commercial space that's getting built with fewer parking spaces than before. Now, um, on the one hand, uh, you could argue that that's bad news for the people who live there. But the truth is that that parking was always overbuilt. It was not just a subsidy for car ownership. It was also a tremendous amount of waste. So by getting rid of those minimums, Buffalo has begun to see the type of development that characterized American cities up until uh the automobile age i also want to single out um cincinnati and i think i'm picking these two places because i think they're not often part of our discussion when we talk about uh, u.s cities and the innovative things they're doing but i was in cincinnati a couple months ago and they have closed uh, entire streets to cars um, to open them up for seating outside and i think there's a perception in america that that kind of thing can only happen in you know uh rome or something like that but in fact there in cincinnati uh, the Rome and the Midwest, they are, they're are—they're doing it right there downtown and it's working
0: really well. Very last question, it has to be quick I'm afraid, but do you see America's traditional love for the automobile as an inhibitor to progress or can those two things coexist?
1: I have often tried to pitch this parking reform policy to drivers and say, you know what, this could be better for you too. If what you really <laughs> enjoy is driving fast on a country road then all the sprawl we've built, all the congestion, all this autofocus land use is not really your friend. And in fact, better parking policy would create a better environment on the road for you as well.
0: So here's to better parking policy. Henry Grouin, thanks so much for an entertaining and informative conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.